I'm Autumn Lockett. And this is Mitch Randall. And you're listening to Good Faith Weekly. Welcome to this episode of Good Faith Weekly. And on this week's episode, Autumn and I are going to catch up just a bit. And we're going to have an extended interview with Dr. Terrell Carter, Vice President of Community Life and Chief Diversity Officer at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. And Dr. Carter is also a theologian as well as a former police officer. So it is a fascinating interview that you will not want to miss. Autumn, how are you doing this week? I'm doing well. I'm a little concerned about our COVID-19 numbers that are just, you know, it's sort of like when you're on a roller coaster and that tick, 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 is happening. Yeah, that's what's happening. I tell you what, it has been amazing to see how quickly this has escalated just within the last week or so. Mm -hmm. Uh, Here in Oklahoma, obviously, we have hit two highs in reporting uh, confirmed cases. Uh, Yesterday, we had the highest confirmed case. I think it was almost 500 for a single day. And Texas, Florida, Georgia, North Carolina, All of uh, these states seem to see an incredible increase in uh, confirmed cases. Read just this morning in Houston, Texas, that they are really concerned in the next 24 hours that they're going to be running out of ICU beds uh, for those who they're admitting for COVID-19. Oh, you mean just like the epidemiologist said what happened back in April? Exactly. And that's where we're going back to this, this idea. And there seems to be no reckoning at this point, at least. Maybe there will be in November that all these politicians, uh, regardless of party, who wanted to rush back uh, and open up uh, businesses and restaurants uh, so quickly and tell people they didn't have to wear a mask and it was going to be fine and the summer months were going to kill the virus. Well, guess what? They forgot to tell everybody except the virus because the Mm. virus did not care what they were doing. They created these Petri dishes for people to enter into that was just prime for contracting the virus. It was just absolutely asinine. It was uncalled for. And now we're seeing the results of those decisions. I hope and pray that these people are held accountable for their lack of leadership in this perilous time. Yeah. Mitch, how do you respond to the people um primarily evangelicals who are saying things like you're living in fear and God's going to protect me and um, all, all the rhetoric, rhetoric that we're hearing around this anti-masking movement. See, and that, that, that is such a childish way of approaching these issues uh, from a theological standpoint. Because fear, <laughs> fear is a natural, uh, a, a natural reaction given to us by God. Uh, it, it, there's the fear and flight uh, no, or components of every individual, and so fear is a defense mechanism. Uh, it helps protect us. When you look at the Bible, uh, there was certainly fear all throughout it. Now. The question is, how do you react to that fear? Fear is a gift given to us by our creator. It is innate in every human being. You've heard of the fear and flight uh, reactions of every human being. 
the reality is fear is a gift from God. It helps protect life. It helps protects families. It's how we react out of that fear that is essential. Mm-hmm. Give you an example of this. You think about uh, David, for example, when Goliath was sent out to fight the armies of Israel, the and, and Goliath is out there and he's. Uh, you know, mocking the Israelites, and they are cowering in fear because you have this giant out there threatening to destroy them. And here you have young David come. And I'm sorry, David was probably a little bit scared. Mm-hmm. And what did he do to protect himself? He took a slingshot and some rocks. He used the tools available to him to protect him and his people. But it was a reaction out of fear because you had this giant coming in saying that he was going to kill everybody. Right. So let's take it in today's context. The, the COVID-19 scares the living hell out of all of us because it is killing us as a global society and infecting millions. We're almost to a quarter billion infections across the world. So the virus itself is this giant causing fear. Now, how we react to that fear is essential. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. we look around, what has God given us to protect us from this giant of a virus? Mm -hmm. He's given Mm -hmm. us the best scientists ever have walked on the earth. He's given us masks. He's given us the, the ability to understand social distancing is the best way to fight this giant and to kill it. And so how we react out of that fear is, an, is actions of responsibility and actions of courage because that is the way to attack the giant. Mm-hmm. It is irresponsible to not use the tools that God has given us the assets that God has given us to protect ourselves and to destroy the giant at the same time. So it is absolutely childish to say to David, David, go out and fight that giant, but hey, leave your slingshot, leave your rocks there on the sideline. Just you go out and take care of him fist to fist. That is, I'm sorry, stupid. To combat this virus by just ignoring it, and going out and living your life as it's not even there mm-hmm. is asinine. And it is childish and ridiculous. God has given us these incredible tools to combat this virus and to kill this giant. And people of faith, unfortunately, are leading the way mm-hmm. and saying, no, we're going to ignore those tools you've given us, God. Yep. We're going to go on our own because we've got this misguided understanding of living in fear. It's it's just absolutely ridiculous. And I'm, as you can tell, get really frustrated about it. Yeah. Well, and I just think about that felt board story of David and Goliath. You know, on the felt board, like you said, he used the tools at hand. He used a slingshot. He used a rock. He didn't stand there in the face of Goliath and stick his big David head in the sand. Exactly. You know, exactly. I, would, I would go, you know, you said they're going to come out fighting with their hands. These people aren't even fighting with their hands. Mm-hmm. They're just completely ignoring and choosing to just, you know, it's like, you know, there's something dangerous outside. So you just close your curtains and don't look at it. Yeah. You know, it, it reminds me of why theology is so important and making certain that 
we study and understand the scriptures and how we apply those scriptures to our life. Because what we are seeing now is this misguided masculinity of mm-hmm. a theological understanding that, you know, we're just so tough uh, that we're going to go out and, you know, combat this giant uh, without any tools that God has provided us. Mm-hmm. And that's just not the way this works. The way we have faith in God is to look around and see the tools that he has given us. And we've already named those tools, but it is disingenuous and what I have termed in the last few years, theological malpractice, hmm. not to rely upon... Blasphemous. It, yes. If you do not rely upon God and the gifts that God has given you to combat the evils and the diseases of this world, it's just, it, just, it just blows my mind. And I just, I just really, really don't understand it. Speaking of evil diseases, racism. We'll racism. Oh my gosh. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, instead of you and I talking about it again, let's listen to the interview that we conducted with Dr. Terrell Carter, which is yeah. absolutely incredible. So stay tuned after these messages. Well, and they're going to hear half of it on this episode. Oh, that's right. And yep. we're going to do the other half next week. Because, because it's that had, good. It is that good. He had so much to say, we couldn't edit him. Right. That's absolutely so. Stay tuned for the first half of our interview with Dr. Terrell Carter. Are you worried that COVID-19 is going to put off your plans for theological education? The Baptist Seminary of Kentucky is offering a full schedule online this fall. Our approach to online education is unique, offering classes live and face-to-face via Zoom. At BSK, relationship is critical, and we are thrilled to be able to offer our Master of Divinity, Pastoral Care Certificate, and Rural Ministry Certificate this way. Learn more at bsk.edu. Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly, and on this episode we have a very important guest with us, Dr. Terrell Carter, Vice President of Community Life and Chief Diversity Officer at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. Dr. Carter, welcome to the pod today. Thank you for having me. We are delighted that you're here. Yeah, we are so thankful for you taking the time. We had sort of a candid conversation with you last week, and Mitch and I immediately decided that you needed to be on the podcast stat, which it sounds like you've been doing a lot of these kind of things, so we appreciate your time. Again, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you all for the invitation. Wonderful. So we want to start out um, just with a question we've been asking everyone during this pandemic. Um, How are you and your family doing? We are actually doing pretty well. Uh, So um, I have my wife and we have our 15 year old daughter who lives at home with us. And we have a 22 year old son who graduated from college last year, but who lives in Atlanta now. Uh, So he's doing well. Our 15 year old daughter, uh, I joked uh, two Sundays ago when I was, uh, I served as pastor of a church and I joked at the beginning of the sermon that before all this happened, everybody wanted to work from home. My daughter was complaining about having to go to school, but now she told me and my wife, I am ready to start seeing other people. So, <laughs> I'm with her. I'm with all, her. <laughs> right. So we're all doing well. You know, my wife works from home. I still come to the campus every day. So uh, it's just been really interesting, but very thankful that uh, the Lord has blessed us and has protected us. And we both have continued to work as well. That's Fantastic. Great. Glad everybody's healthy and and starting to, to, to get out and 
safely, obviously, but to get out uh, from uh, the uh, quarantine that we were all facing for months and, and months. So, well, you know, again, glad that uh, you decided to be with us today. Um, you know, we had a conversation, as Autumn mentioned a moment ago, uh, last week talking about uh, some potential columns that you're going to be writing for Good Faith Media, uh, also uh, potential book projects uh, that, that we're working with you on. And in the course of that conversation, we thought, oh, we got to have Dr. Carter on because he was just he was uh, so wise in what he was saying and uh, the issues that he were that you were uh, talking about last week. We wanted to to invite our listeners to, to, to get your perspective on as well. Uh, part of your job at the university is chief diversity officer, which I absolutely love that title. Um, we've talked a lot about diversity these days. We're really intrigued by the work you're doing at Greenville. So tell us a little bit about your work at the university as vice president of community life and chief diversity officer. So I was hired at Greenville University, which is located in Greenville, Illinois, because um, literally they uh, experienced uh, a season where uh, students of color, minority students, uh, did not feel welcome. And probably the simplest way for me to say it is after Mike Brown was shot and killed several years ago, we had uh, minority students who began to take a knee uh, during athletic events. And people within the community and the surrounding communities did not respond very well to that at all. Uh, at one point, uh, football players at a homecoming game uh, planned on taking a knee, um, and uh, veterans, local veterans from the city of Greenville and the surrounding community uh, took uh, offense to that. And so they worked out a plan where these veterans would do a color guard uh, presentation, present the flag, all those things, and then the students, the athletes, would come out and still take a knee. Uh, unfortunately, uh, a, a, not a biker gang, uh, but a group of other veterans from other surrounding communities showed up on bikes and stormed the field to fight our student athletes. Oh my goodness! Um, right, and so in addition to that, there were several other things that occurred. Uh, but from that, that was essentially the final straw that uh, leadership within the community of leadership within the university understood that uh, race and race relations was a much bigger challenge than they fully understood or that they were fully ready to try to engage themselves. And so that's where my position or why and how my position was created. And so I had previously been a professor, assistant professor at uh, Central Baptist Theological Seminary. Uh, which is in Shawnee, Kansas. I live in St. Louis. My family is in St. Louis. I serve as pastor of a church in the suburbs of St. Louis and was looking as much as I loved Central. I wanted to get back closer to home. Mm -hmm. And I have been writing, as you know, about race and reconciliation for several years. Right. And when I saw this uh, advertisement, it seemed like a good fit. And the Lord blessed that I was in the, uh, eventually chosen as the chief diversity officer. And I have to acknowledge, though, that it has been somewhat of a struggle since uh, I have been here. I've been here a year, and, you know, people talk about diversity and the need and desire for diversity, but when it comes to the actual work of doing diverse things or uh, moving into a life of diversity, uh, it is harder than many people think or than what most people think. So, Yeah, and that's uh, a great point, Dr. Carter, because, I mean, a lot of times uh, we do talk about diversity, uh, it's something that many of us uh, attempt to achieve, but it's not easy. 
uh, because there's hard work attached to that kind of diversity. An ongoing work. It is it's absolutely. It's not a box I can check. Yeah. So what are some of the goals yeah, of the right. university that you're striving towards? What are some of the projects you're working on? What we have done, um, so the student population, uh, again, Greenville, the city of Greenville is historically a white you know, town with less than 10%, 15% diversity, and the majority of the diversity comes from the student body. Um, and our students are, are primarily, our diverse students are primarily athletes, so that brings its own challenges. But what we are trying to do is, is give students uh, a bigger platform to be able to talk and to have their voices heard and for them to be able to contribute to the decision-making process. We are also intentionally engaging with the community. We just formed a community reconciliation task force, which I'm leading, but we have uh, within that task force uh, city leaders, as well as leaders from the university, as well as student leaders who are all working together to form uh, initially a mission statement that says, here goes what we have understood has been the challenge within our community and our relationships. Here goes what we plan on doing to try to fix those relationships or to heal those relationships rather. And here goes the time frame, and that's just the beginning. That's, so those are some of the initial things, making sure that students are more involved and they, they contribute to the decision-making process and then also this uh, uh, reconciliation task force that brings leaders from each of the different sectors to just, you know, be very open to come up with plans, come up with timeframes. And, um, you know, it's not about words. It's always going to be about action. If we cannot come up with actionable items, then we're not going to even discuss it. We're going to move on to something where we can't come up with actionable items. Well, you're doing great work, and uh, I mean, just keep it up, and uh, hopefully, uh, continue uh, the, uh, the with passion and with compassion, uh, teaching these students, and also transforming the community around it. The community needs to to come to grips with their own past, also with the realization of we live in a diverse r- a world, and uh, the the need to embrace yeah. that. So, good job. Yeah, absolutely. So in addition to the, this pandemic of racism that we're all dealing with and, and have been dealing with, there's another pandemic going on. Um, the numbers are insane. Um, over 9 million cases around the world with over 2.3 million in the U.S. And we're approaching half a million deaths globally as the death rates in the U.S. Um, are nearing 125,000. We read a report recently by NPR that said, you know, unsurprisingly, that the virus is affecting communities of color disproportionately. Um, Race and ethnicity, known for almost 50% of all reported cases and 90% of death in the U.S. So how do you respond to that news? So, I mean, it's it's obviously not good news, but it also points out uh, the disparities that are clearly present in our communities. Um, So, uh, you know, COVID-19 is not racist. <laughs> I'm sorry for laughing. but I, No, you're absolutely I, right. But it, it shows the disparities in how our different communities, uh, the disparities that exist between our different communities. Um, you know, it's the first, in, I live in St. Louis, and the first 12 or 14 deaths of, of, from COVID-19 were all African-Americans. Um, it points out the fact that there's a lack of multiple things 
in white culture and black culture, I'm going to simplify it because I am black, I'm African-American, and obviously the two of you are white. Um, it, it shows the disparities between those two groups. Again, I recognize there are more groups than just that. Uh, but, you know, it shows in St. Louis, it shows the lack of accessible health care. It shows the lack of health care. It shows where the health care is being most concentrated and where it is not. It shows who has insurance and who does not have insurance. But it also shows who trusts uh, the government, who trusts these systems and who do not. Uh, so I just said three things, and I, I want to be very quick in how I try to explain this. You know, so again, I'm a former police officer in the city of St. Louis. Uh, I used to patrol, you know, essentially the entire city, as most officers do at some point. Um, but when you look on a map, you, I'm also on the board of directors for the St. Louis Mental Health Board, and we commissioned a study to show where the medical resources were found in the city of St. Louis versus where the greatest need is. And the medical resources are not located in the places that have the greatest need. The medical resources are located in the places that have the greatest amount of money and the greatest amount of resources in order to be able to access that. But the people that need it the most are the furthest away. It's just like when it comes to food deserts and those kind of things. Uh, the communities that are most hard hit by these kinds of things are the ones who have the least access to it. Number two, um, you, it shows who has insurance and who does not. Um, you know, again, if you have a job and you have a job of a certain level or a certain income, then it's more than likely that you're going to have insurance. Uh, but again, uh, the people that most need it or need access and need to have the opportunity to take advantage of these things uh, typically in St. Louis have the lower paying jobs and don't have the insurance that they need. Again, and number three, um, there is a distrust in the medical community, a distrust of the medical community in certain minority communities. Uh, most people don't know this or understand this, but uh, African-Americans, black people um, have distrusted or have not trusted, you know, government or uh, medicine because of the things that have happened in the past as well. So I'm not going to bring up a whole list, but, uh, you know, there was a, a famous study that was done where African-Americans were uh, injected with syphilis and, and, you know, allowed to see what happened to their bodies and to their families after they were exposed to those kind of things. Um, so there is a long running distrust in the, of the medical community as well in many African-American homes because of the things that we've seen or that we have experienced in the past. And so all of that, in my mind, plays into the disparities of who gets or who gets sick and who gets treated or who dies from uh, coronavirus or COVID-19. You know, Dr. Carter, I mean, you're absolutely right, because, I mean, not only is this dis disproportionate uh, with the African-American community, but it's, it's all uh, people of color. We see it uh, with uh, right. the Hispanic community, uh, the indigenous people. I'm Native American, uh, so I'm from the Muscogee Creek tribe. And, of course, Native Americans have this long and, history. And my, my apologies for, uh, for not recognizing no, that. No. <laughs> people, <laughs> uh, people skip over it all the time. They just think I live in the South and I'm dark-complected. So. <laughs> well, you nailed me, Terrell. Guilty. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is, and what, but my point was with the Hispanic communities, with the African American communities, with the Native American communities, there's these, these long histories of distrust, uh, not only 
with the, the government, but also with the white culture. And yeah. when pandemics like we're seeing and, and enduring right now emerge, all of a sudden it reveals all of these fractures, these historical fractures that have occurred over time. And mm-hmm. uh, it plays into uh, you know, the, the travesties of sickness and deaths uh, because of this mistrust. And so when theologians like yourself and you know, pastors around the country keep hammering to their congregation, this is the reason we need to love one another. This is the reason we need to respect one another. This is the reason we need to find common ground. Uh, it's because of situations like this. When these emerge, there's going to be all of these fractures that are revealed within a pandemic or within a global crisis. And so, um, you know, I just, I just, I'm trying to echo your words because I, I do see it across ethnicities uh, and, and cultures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, not only are we enduring this global pandemic, but we're experiencing what many are hoping is a global transformation when it comes to the issue of social justice and specifically racial justice. With the deaths of Hamad Aubrey, George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Rayshard Brooks, and so many others, people have taken to the streets to protest and demand changes. One of those changes includes revisioning policing in this country. And as a former police officer, as you mentioned a moment ago, what do you think needs to happen to policing in this country? So we need two episodes to talk about what I think needs to occur. <laughs> we can do that. Because I'm here for it. <laughs> right. I, I, I'm sorry. I always apologize for this, but I, I, I've written two books about policing. Mm-hmm. Uh, one was called Walking the Blue Line, and the other is called, most recently, Police on the Pedestal. And Police on the Pedestal was written in 2018 and was released in 2019, uh, February of 2019. And uh, each of the books builds upon each other. The, the, the point that I'm getting to is, is that policing, what I have learned is not about helping citizens. Policing is about protecting that system. So policing in my mind is a system like any relationship uh, is a system, any organization is a system. Policing is a system itself and it exists to take care of itself. Uh, and officers uh, are not encouraged to go out and help people. At no point in my tenure as a police officer did anyone ever say to me, your job, your duty, your privilege today is go out and help people. I was always told your job is to go out and make arrests and to get people to stop calling 911 so you can concentrate on making drug arrests. Um, So there just needs to, not just, but there needs to be a complete overhaul in the purpose of policing. Uh, And that, takes multiple steps from changing the laws to not asking police officers to be the end all for everything. A police officer should not be expected to be a social worker, should not be expected to be uh, an arbiter between family disagreements, should not be the person that has to go and respond to a dog barking. Uh, We have city services or county services for those things, but we expect police officers to be the person that handles everything. And that, um, that comes with a unique uh, level of stress. Uh, those things just along trying to be uh, the one that takes care of everything. 
Uh, but again, when you add that to the stress of a system that says you exist to help us get more money by making arrests, by helping us uh, build statistics in order that we can apply for this grant so we can get this new equipment, uh, that's a unique kind of pressure that, that, that changes um, how you view people. One of the things I say all the time is, is I am a pretty lucky, you know, lucky guy. I'm a pretty happy-go-lucky rather guy. Uh, I don't get stressed over too many things. I'm able to keep, uh, you know, a pretty even keel. But when I was a police officer, uh, my whole disposition changed because uh, I never saw people at their best. I never interacted with anyone while things were good. It was always under stress. Um, so number one, help people. What needs to change in policing? The nature and the purpose of policing uh, needs to be reevaluated and modified. Uh, number two, um, we have to help police officers uh, understand that not all people are criminals, that just because you live in a particular neighborhood or you look a particular way um, does not make you a criminal, that uh, citizens are not just a, a means for you to build your statistics of arrest so you can get promoted. Uh, police officers don't get rewarded um, because they were officer friendly, because they helped the family. Police officers get rewarded and promoted because they made a certain level of arrest over you know, a series of years. Uh, so there so truly is a system. It's a reward system based upon, yeah. um, I don't want to use the word confrontational, but it, it's a reward system based upon, um, how, like I said, how many arrests. Uh, and so there's no one, it's not incentivized to not make an arrest. <laughs> right. Yeah, very true. I mean, it's, it's, I remember I used to work secondary. That's a part-time job in uniform, like, you know, as a bank security officer. And uh, I had a sergeant who used to berate me, well not berate, but he used to give me a hard time. And he, he would say to me every day, oh, you're going to work this part-time job. All you have to do is go out and arrest somebody and you can make all the overtime you wanted. And my response to him was, why would I arrest somebody just for the sake of getting overtime? Mm -hmm. That doesn't make sense. That's ruining somebody else's life just for a few dollars in my pocket. But that's the type of attitude that I'm saying that needs to be changed. Right. Yeah, I was watching. Go ahead. Okay. Would you say that that's, that's unique to the police department where you were? Or would you say that's a pretty universal sort of environment of police? That is a pretty universal environment. One of the other things that I've begun to say on a regular basis is when you start hearing, one of the unique things about the complaints that African-Americans have been making about police is you're not hearing anything new. These are all things that have been said for multiple generations, not multiple years, but multiple generations. Uh, so yeah, there's nothing new about, uh, the difference in all of this has been over the past, you know, almost month, is that more of this stuff has been showing up on camera and people have been responding to what they've seen on camera. But this is not the first time it showed up on camera. I mean, right, sure. uh, I don't know how old you are, either one of you are, but uh, all you have to do is think back to Rodney King and mm -hmm. before Rodney King, all you have to do is think back to Dr. Martin Luther King and, you know, how they were treated by police. And then before that, all you have to do is go back to photos and newspapers I mean, and magazines. Yeah. Emmett Till. Yeah. I mean, when his mother made the decision to have an open casket, I mean, it was to show the, I mean, just the atrocity and the violence and the evil uh, that was happening in the South. Uh, yes. 
I agree completely. And so none of this is new. So to answer your question, Autumn, yes, this is, I would believe, I would say is, I hate to use the word rampant, but it is, it is the order of business for any law enforcement agency that you come in contact with. Okay, and we're going to stop there for today, and we'll resume the rest of this interview next week. Our audience, thank you for listening in, and as always, make certain you're practicing good faith.